Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Friday morning from 10 to 11 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. The Missouri Arts Council's featured August artists span the state from St. Louis to Kansas City and from Kirksville to Columbia. I love these monthly trips around the state to find out what's happening in the art world beyond mid-Missouri, especially at this time when most of us are spending less time on the road and more time enjoying the arts from home. One thing these monthly art tours are a reminder of is how when everything else in the world might stop or slow down, art making remains incredibly alive. On this month's featured artist tour, we'll be checking in with two painters, a ceramic artist and a polydisciplinary artist, three of whom draw on their memories of childhood in their work, plus a fantasy surrealist painter who would be more at home in Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. So, fasten your seatbelts. We are going to start today by heading north up Highway 63 to Kirksville. The art of watercolour artist Rusty Nelson is about who he is, where he has come from, where he has been and where he wants to go. These days, he is a professor of art at Truman State University, where he teaches graphic design, illustration, 3D modelling and animation. But in his early career, he owned an advertising agency and put his artistic talents to use creating marketing campaigns in an era that morphed from analogue to digital. Go back even farther and he was a farm boy in the tiny farming community of Delphos in north central Kansas. But in his heart, he was always an artist. A good morning, Rusty, and welcome to Speaking of the Arts. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, take us back to life on the farm in north central Kansas and the development of your artistic heart. What are your early memories of, of uh, wanting to make art? Well, I was always drawing as a kid, so uh, I was that strange kid that nobody knew what to do with because I was always sitting around drawing cows, horses, cowboys, Indians, just anything I could at that time and, and really just experimenting and, and doing that constantly, even with friends. When you grow up on a farm that's been in your family for a hundred years and you're the one who wants to forego hay baling for a life of painting, what kind of resistance do you meet? Actually, there really wasn't. I was always encouraged to do it. And I remember my grandmother was very, very encouraging to continue on and, and keep working with it. And so was my, my mom and the rest of the family. So they, I think, recognized that I had some aptitude in doing that. So they, they always, you know, my mom would bring home sample papers and stuff that uh, just stacks of it. And I would have this nice supply of paper to draw with. Was there anybody else in your family that was an artist? No, not that I know of. <laughs> Musician or? <laughs> no, no, we were, we, no, not at all. It was just really kind of a, a out of left field situation. So they, they did their best with uh, 
realizing that I could do these things and encouraged it. When you think back again to painting as a child, what were your inspirations? I mean, did, did you, were you drawn to the light of the prairies or the composition of landscapes or, or just a sense of recording your childhood experiences? It was actually probably more related to the, the TV Westerns that were on at the time <laughs> in the 60s, it, drawing Matt Dillon and John Wayne and, and things like that. So, and horses, like I said, that, you know, it was a farming and ranching operation, so we had a lot of horses and, and uh, cattle to uh, to try to draw and figure out. You know, how do you how do you make it look like a a cow or a horse or a person thing like that? Right, and I think that's where a lot of young artists get discouraged because you have this idea, you see something in front of you, you have an idea in your mind's eye, and you your hand isn't able to recreate it on the page mm-hmm. or the canvas. Do you have that experience or did you just work through it? What were your moments of getting that art down on the page as a child? It, it was a frustration. I remember that, you know, you draw these things and you're trying to, you know, everything was in profile, if I remember correctly, you know, you, it's the, the standing figure in profile. And so, you know, trying to wrap your head around three dimensions mm. and, and uh, that was always the challenge. And, and I even, uh, my parents, I had several little, little, uh, how to draw horses type books and things like that, that I would use and, and uh, would sit and, and study those. And, you know, gosh, I would have killed for uh, having a YouTube channel to watch <laughs> back then. Yes. Long before that time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, quite a bit. So when that even, that even transferred in even further after college, you know, in college it was predominantly oil painting and uh, charcoal drawings and, and acrylic painting and uh, graduating from college and, and uh, getting started as a graphic designer. And I always had that interest in, in illustration and the, the illustrators, I admired their work that I would see in communication arts and, and uh, various trade magazines. You know, I, I was trying to figure out how they did that. I was doing it with acrylics and, and it finally dawned on me, they were working with wet media. So essentially a few years after college, I totally scrapped, acrylic and oil painting and and moved into a a wet media, which was a designer's gouache at that time. You write that you love to geek out about watercolor and gouache, which is kind of an opaque watercolor. What is it that you love as an artist about wet media? Well, the the thing that I think uh, took me to watercolor was uh, I was department chair for the Truman State University Art Department for nine years. And I just didn't have a lot of time to do anything creative except in class. So I started doing more and more demos in class using gouache. And the technique I had developed with gouache was still pretty labor intensive. It'd take me two or three class sessions to get a completed illustration done that the students could watch me doing it. And I did have a little section on watercolor to introduce them to uh, another media, but I started doing it as well. So the thing I realized was I could do a completed watercolor in one class setting within two, two and a half hours. So that's really kind of my uh, beginnings of moving it over from gouache to watercolor was this simply the speed of it. Watercolor is such a beautiful medium, but it's it seems to fail to ever be trendy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> why does watercolor, why is it kind of always the poor relation to oil and acrylic, do you think? You know, I think it really goes back to maybe the some of the earlier artists that were doing large pieces in oils. They they would probably 
do their studies in watercolor. And it, it's maybe just kind of got the bad rap as it's just a quick study and move on from that. But mm. the, the joy and the, the beauty of watercolor, you know, the, and the artists that, you know, it's that style that the techniques they develop and then that look, they all have a different way of doing it and, and manipulating it and uh, trying, you know, it's a, it's a constant battle for control with watercolor. It's, it's very, there's a lot of improvising going on when you're actually in the process of creating the piece and it's spontaneous. And, and the nice thing about it too is, is if you mess up, just do it again. It doesn't take that long. So my students, when I am doing the demos that I'm slapping the water down with the pigment and all of a sudden things start taking shape. And I think it, it really does kind of amaze them that these really nice looking pieces can happen so quickly. I'm trying to show them, you know, with the watercolors, I'm doing a lot more landscapes and architecture and things like that. And I really don't like architecture or landscape, but I'm forcing myself to do it. So I always enjoyed painting people and, and portraits and things like that. So, but I'm, I'm beginning to really enjoy. And again, because I forced myself to do it, I'm starting to like landscapes and watercolors and stuff more. That's amazing because looking through your website, your watercolor page, your portfolio, it's almost all landscapes and uh-huh. an architecture. Yeah, the, all my watercolor stuff I've been doing in the last three years, like I said, I've been forcing myself to figure out how to paint a decent landscape because whenever I did it in the past with acrylics or oils or anything, they were always so stiff and stale and that's the one thing I think the watercolor is allowing me to do is to loosen up and you know and I'm, I'm kind of a recovering realist right uh, <laughs> photo realist so I'm trying very hard to loosen up and work more impressionistically so so I mean, you spent many years in the advertising and graphic design business and what made you leave and decide to go into teaching well I went in received my degree in graphic design and I don't really know that I knew what was in store for me. So I, I bounced into advertising design just as the bulk of where the jobs were was in advertising. So I worked in advertising for probably four or five years and started realizing I wasn't real thrilled with advertising. <laughs> so I started looking around and, and uh, looking for graduate programs that I could get the uh, advanced degree so I could maybe move it over into teaching about graphic design. It's just the whole idea of I'd rather prepare students from the lessons I had learned as a as a graphic designer that I didn't really feel like I had a good setup when I moved into it. So I'm I'm more about showing the students, preparing them, letting them know what they're getting into when they are working in this degree, that it's going to be a, a lot of client based oriented stuff. Now, I did grow to love doing it. After the experience and, and uh, being a newbie or off, I really did find there was a lot of joy in, in the problem solving and the uh, making a client happy, solving their problems that they're needing solved. Well, I mean, you've been teaching at Truman State in Kirksville since 1998. And over that period of time, the last 23 years, there's been a huge shift, not only in how design is now created, all digitally, no longer analog, but also the explosion in how it is used, where design is needed, 3D modeling, computer games, there's so many things that weren't happening when you were working in graphic design. I'm curious, what has been the most challenging to keep up with? 
amazingly, even before I left the uh, professional field doing advertising on a daily basis, I, you know, I was working with the uh, Adobe products, Photoshop, Illustrator, and that. So those bedrock programs of InDesign, Illustrator, Photoshop, page layout, raster and vector programs, they haven't really changed a whole lot. I think the biggest trick has been adding the whole HTML coding into a a, uh, program because that is such a frustration in that you have to learn all of that code before it starts looking proper. And and then also we we, uh, brought in the 3D modeling and animation track into our program and that's been a very large uh, time sink as well, trying to learn. We actually use uh, an open source software called Blender and learning how to, to do that, in, not only in the modeling and the rendering, but also the animation. So it's, it's a very powerful program. And just trying to stay on top of that has, you know, that's one of my frustrations is that, like I said, I like geeking out about watercolor, <laughs> but I have so many other commitments of learning these other techniques. So it's challenging, it's fun, and frustrating all at the same time. So. <laughs> Well, I think thinking about students and those of us that work in the arts, we talk a lot about how critical the arts are in our K through 12 education, only because creativity is so important to children's emotional development and self-expression, but also because, as you said, most of our careers involve coming up with creative solutions and making people happy. So when you look back on two decades of teaching art and design to college students, I'm wondering if you see any patterns when it comes to creativity and learning, if there's been any change in in how students arrive in your classroom from their K through 12 education? You know, they're really the same. The, the thing I have noticed, like when I first entered higher education teaching design, you know, I was coming out of that transition time of going from analog into the digital. So, which I also tease my students that I can be a designer even if the power goes out because I had the experience (laughs) prior to the computers being utilized. But I see with the students the the ability to take a piece of artwork and illustration further to completion on the digital side than they are willing to do on the traditional side. Mainly, I think it's just fear. They have the undo available to them when they're digitally painting. So that notion of they, they'll take a traditional piece only to a certain point, to the point that they're afraid of screwing it up and messing up and having to start over again because I'm, I'm a big proponent of that. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of some interesting things I've noticed over the years with the students. But it's really the same issues of just trying to come to grips with that whole notion of they see in their mind's eye what they want and their ability to get it there, regardless of the media. That's that's the constant frustration and, and the, the challenge that students have. Well, before we close, do you have any shows coming up where people can see your work in person? Yes, if if everybody would be interested in the, coming up to the north area of Missouri here in Kirksville, we have a faculty show right now that I have about 40-some watercolors in the show. Well, you can explore Russell Nelson or Rusty Nelson's portfolio of watercolor works and his design and illustration works on his website at nelsonartkvmo.com. Or as he said, just pop up to Kirksville and take a look in the gallery up there. Russell, thank you. Or Rusty, thank you so much for taking us on a tour of your work and inspirations this morning. 
Well, thank you. This is fun. I feel like I should start this next chat with a little clip of music from the 1971 version of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look and you'll see into your imagination. Because it is the favourite quote and personal philosophy of surreal and fantasy painter Molly Chouinard, who is my next guest this morning. The St. Louis-based painter's works are riots of colour and humour and whimsy, suffused with details that make you do a double take and which have cleverly punny titles like Mary Poppins and Santa's Claus and maybe my favourite, Bibliosaurus, a painting of a modified stegosaurus with a tummy full of books and little figures climbing his staircase back to hunt out titles on the high shelves of a giant library. I'm going to give you her website address up front so you can look through her works as we chat. So go to mollyshunard.com and that's spelled M-O-L-L-I-E-C-H-O-U-N-A-R-D.com. Good morning, Molly. Good morning. That intro was amazing. Like, I love how you described everything like that. I need you for my writing. <laughs> well, you, your artworks would suggest that you are a perpetually sunny person. Is that the case? Actually, I'm sometimes the opposite. I'm quite a pessimist. And so I, I feel like it's important to put really positive things in the world. Uh, it kind of cheers me up. But also, you know, I feel like that's better for everyone, really. Why make a bunch of negative stuff? Right. I mean, do you, when you sit down to a canvas and you feel down, are you able to paint or you can't paint or does the act of painting lift you up? Oh, no. I I usually paint pretty happy. Yeah. Now I can't really paint when I'm down. So they usually cheer me up before I even start. I mean, that's part of the process. I mean, it, it cheers me and hopefully everyone who sees them. You have so many paintings on your website. Are you a fast painter or does what I'm looking at represent many years of work? A little bit of both. Um, I would say that I am a fast painter, but a lot of times actually what takes more time than the painting is just the planning of the paintings and the conceptualizing of them. So I might have an, an idea or a story in mind, and then it's how do I put it on canvas in a way that isn't too straightforward and something that gives the viewer a chance to really delve in and, and experience it in a different way. And that's a bit tricky. Where do your paintings start? Like with the character in the paintings or the background or? They start with an idea. So there's usually something I want to say or an idea that I want to to get across. Sometimes it comes with an image, but usually it's a, it's usually it starts with words. Is that weird? <laughs> no. <laughs> I do a lot of word brainstorming and association. Tell me a little bit about your background as a painter and where this love of surrealism started. I guess I you could say I'm classically trained. I have a, a bachelor's degree in graphic design and illustration and a minor in painting. But, you know, I spent many years not doing anything professionally. I was just, you know, a hobby painter. When I got out of college, I just wasn't really, I knew graphic design wasn't for me by the time I by the time I got my degree. So I've just been working out, trying to live my life. And and so I had an opportunity, I don't know, about six or seven years ago now to really change that. 
And so I jumped in with both feet. And so I've been doing painting since then. And the surrealism actually started from my husband. He and I would were working on a project together. He's a, a computer programmer. So he was making an indie video game. And he asked me to come up with some characters for his game. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I can do that. That sounds like fun. Um, working with your, your spouse, not always a great idea. <laughs> because... <laughs> The project didn't end up happening, so it got scrapped. And so, you know, I had all these ideas and these characters. You know, when you're creating a video game, it's all about storylines and plot. And in my head, I have designed these characters, and they had feelings, and they had character, and they they actually existed in my brain. Like, this is a fully-fledged person. So I created a series of characters on, you know, painting them to give them a more full life than just a two-dimensional drawing or, you know, one that we would have animated for a video game. And that's where it started, I guess. And were these characters all animals? Actually, at the time, there was a Cyclops. One of my favorite paintings that I've ever done is <laughs> it's got him and his family. And then there was a, a bunny who pulled a magician out of his hat and an ostrich lady. They're all circus characters. I've seen those on your website, I think, all, all three of those. Yeah. So what was the opportunity that came along that allowed you to become a painter? So I was laid off from a job, actually. And uh, they gave me a really nice severance because it just wasn't working out. I think they'd hired me to fill a position for someone they thought was retiring. She had no intention. So five years later, they realized that the position wasn't necessary. And um, so they offered me a really nice severance and... My husband's like, well, if you ever really want to go for it, let's do it. And so I did. And I, I worked uh, part-time at a painting with a twist, teaching people how to paint or instructing them. I guess it's not quite painting. And then um, that allowed me to really work on the side. And then art fairs really opened up another avenue for me, being able to travel and show my work and discuss it. And you can really make more of a connection with your buyers when you can discuss the, the work. And uh, so it's worked out pretty well for me. I used to run an art fair here in Colombia, so I understand the process. I mean, and it's not something that you just one day think you're going to do and then do it. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. You need to have a tent and you need to have stock for shelving, for walls to put in the tent and ways of displaying your work. And you need to work out how to apply for festivals. So tell me about that first, those first festivals. Were you accepted straight away because I can see that your work has a huge appeal to people and I know that if it had come across as one of the entries in our art festival I would have been totally on it <laughs> so, well, thank you. Where, where did it start the festival world start for you actually uh as odd as it sounds I uh I met a, another co-worker at painting with a twist and she said hey I did this this art fair and I think it would be fun for you to try it and I was like no 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 and she's like, you don't have to have a huge setup. You don't have to, you know, you just have to set your work out and, and, you know, just be there, just show up. And I'm like, well, so, uh, in, in true Molly fashion, I tend to over plan for things. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't, uh, take small measures. I, I got on the internet. I did a lot of research and I found a set of panels on Craigslist. I lucked out. Uh, so I ended up with a full set of panels and a fully fledged tent and I was ready to go. 
And I've had the same panels and the same tent since. Well, actually, I had to replace the tent after a tornado. And then every event that I did, I just talked to people. And it was a it was a chance for me to really meet other artists and see what they were doing. And I'd pick their brains and talk to them about, like, hey, so what are you doing? What What events do you like? Is this one good for you? And I met a ton of people that way. Do you sell well at every festival or are some towns better than others? Do you go to some towns where people just love whimsy and other towns where people turn their nose up at it? You know, my very first couple events, I had more of, I had like some of the beginning works that are a little bit more, I don't want to say dark because in my mind, they're very light, but they are more shocking like the Cyclops I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I would get some strange looks. However, I feel like I've always had a good reception. Now that said, it doesn't mean I sell. I have definitely found that urban areas tend to sell better for my work than rural areas. They can't just like it. They have to like it enough to hang it. And I realize as funny as this sounds that my work isn't a living room work. So like a lot of artists, they sell work that hangs above your fireplace and that they want all their (laughs) visitors to see. My work isn't living room work. My art is... It's, it's what they're going to put in their office. It's what they're going to put in their man cave or in their private areas of the house. The places that they spend the most time that they want to look at it, but not necessarily. I mean, certainly I do have people. I mean, it's all over my living room, obviously. But I would like, put it in my living room, I can tell you. <laughs> you know, and so it's, it's just one of those things where I just kind of figure out all along the way, like, like who my, my buyers are. But I've done really well at some smaller events. and. And then I've done shows where I walked out with a with a zero in my pocket, you know, I didn't make any money. And, you know, it just happens. It's part of this job. But at the end of the day, it's it's wonderful. So, I mean, this year there have, have been no festivals or the last two years, really. Has this year been tougher than last year in some ways or equally tough? How have you fared not being able to really sell your work directly for the last two years? Well, actually, I've done a few events this year. I was super active last year. And so like when the pandemic hit and I realized that all the events were going away, it really makes you have to pivot and just figure out what's going to happen. And thankfully, and I, I feel like I was very lucky in this, I did have a really good support. And I was able to come up with a project, um, which is my pet portrait series that pulled me through. And so I was able to do people's pets in a surreal way and in a way that allowed me to then take those same portraits that now I've been paid for to then take those and make them into calendars and postcards and things. And so those have been able to pull me through. Talking about last year, I read about your Kickstarter campaign to help save the U.S. Postal Service and you raised a total of $2,188. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. uh, In the beginning of the pandemic, it's easy to sit back and just be like, well, uh, this kind of (laughs) sucks. And, you know, like I said, I tend to be a bit of a pessimist, but I didn't want (laughs) to wallow on that. I really knew I needed to, I had to get out there and I had to work because this is my career. This is my full-time gig, you know, and doing so, you know, I'm reading the news and I'm like, oh my God, this is just horrible. Like what was happening with the post office? You know, and I feel like they had been a little bit under attack for years, honestly, but I saw an opportunity to, to dip my feet in the Kickstarter pool. And I thought, you know what, why not 
combine the two and to do something that's worthwhile. So it gave me the opportunity to try that platform and a voice to express some of the things like that were really bothering me about how we're treating the U S postal service and, and letting other people say, Hey, yeah, I agree with you. I'm going to back you. And I want you to send these postcards to the, to the president. Or in this case, we also sent them to different representatives around the country. And it really made me feel like people were supporting the whole idea. And it was about getting the, the word out. And it was surprising to me how many people weren't even aware I thought, well, yeah, my mail is slow. They're horrible. Let's just get rid of them. But really, it's a much, much bigger problem than your mail is a little bit slow. I mean, your mail is slow for a reason. So you designed postcards that people could basically buy. So they're your, they're your surreal fantasy designs. And then they could mail them to their senators and congressmen and to the president and say, hey, save the postal service. I think it's such an awesome idea. Did you get a lot of feedback from any government people about it? You know, I didn't. I also had a tier where if they just wanted to donate a dollar, then I would send off a set of, well, I also created a a painting for it. So there's specifically a Save the Post Office painting. Those are the ones that I would, I personally sent off. And, you know, I sent them out, I don't know, I sent out hundreds (laughs) myself. I, I haven't received any word back, but unfortunately the realism of it is that it's going to end up in a mail room somewhere and more than likely never actually get to the person that you're sending it to. But at least you did something. You made an effort. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And I figured if, if I send a multitude of them, they can't stop them all. <laughs> Maybe a few of them will get through and then my voice will be heard at least at some point. So on your website, all your works are prints. How do people buy originals? Usually they they buy them through the art fairs. I'll bring a set of originals there. Or I also have offerings like social media wise, or somebody can contact me about purchasing an original. Well, I love them. The fantasy surrealist art of Molly Chouinard can be found on her website at mollychouinard.com. And that's M-O-L-L-I-E-C-H-O-U-N-A-R-D.com. And if you want to see her work in person, she has a joint show with three other surrealist artists coming up at the Green Door Art Gallery in Webster Groves from the 1st of September through the end of October. And I believe, Molly, you'll also be at the Smoky Hills River Festival in Salina, Kansas over Labor Day weekend and the Mosaics Festival in St. Charles later in September. Is that right? That's correct. Perfect. Well, Molly, thank you for putting so much joy out into the world and for taking time to chat this morning. Of course. Well, thank you for having me. I know I've said this before, but it is worth saying over and over again. The space occupied by the arts en masse is an overwhelmingly white space. In our galleries and museums, on our stages, in our orchestras and in the majority of our arts programming. If you are a black, indigenous, adult or child of colour, the arts serve you a dish that you do not recognise as your own. Black artistic heritage has never been permitted a smooth arc of history. Instead, it is dislocated, fragmented and must be pieced together. And it is this sense of dislocation and disruption which propels Kansas City-based polydisciplinary artist Glenisha Johnson to create art that highlights black interior spaces and to show how these spaces are a place of refuge 
from a world that privileges whiteness. Glenisha Johnson, thank you so much for taking time to chat this morning. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was a lovely intro. Thank you. Well, you are an incredibly active artist. You work across multiple disciplines. You are an educator, a community caretaker. You seem to have almost back-to-back artistic residences across multiple states. You win awards. Your work is in shows as far afield as Savannah, Georgia. And you also co-founded a community-based organization called Strange Fruit Femmes, which provides free programming centered around Black transformative healing through the arts. Do you feel like you are making art at a time when the wider arts community is finally listening? Or does it feel like an uphill struggle all the time? Oh, I think that thankfully that my art has definitely been responded to. And I also recognize, you know, around the same time that my career began after undergraduate school, the movement for Black Lives was also parallel to that. And so I think all artists of color should have this space of recognizing like the place of tokenism in the larger art world. But the art I make, honestly, I've always been making this type of work centered around Black girls returning to home and thinking about the spaces that I grew up in as um, spaces to consider in different ways. Well, you grew up in the South, in Texas. Do you feel like you can be yourself in Kansas City or do you feel more complete in the South? I felt good in Kansas City. I Kansas City is a city that's really beloved to me and treasured um, because it's also a city that I became a woman in and kind of entered womanhood. And so I don't have a relation to the city in a negative experience per se, but I it's a city that I learned a lot in, good and bad, you know, and I'm actually spending some time right now in Dallas and in this place of returning to home, which I haven't spent a lot of time in Dallas as an adult. So it's been a good experience of just like healing and being rooted and working on some of those like family dynamics that are present in my work for sure. Um, But I think with going to Kansas City, unintentionally in undergraduate school, my work was about this sense of like returning to the South with being in this unfamiliar space. And so that's, you know, I was really inspired at the time by the work of Romir Bearden and his interior spaces. And and so I began this process of like going through my own family archives and looking at spaces that I've called home. Um, and unknowingly, I think within doing that was an effort to like be be safe within this unfamiliar setting and space. Well, you write about how the rebirth of these interior, intimate, sacred spaces, such as your grandmother's kitchen or your mother's den, is for you an act of disruption. Would you talk a little bit about that that sense of disruption, that act of disruption? 
Sure. I think that um, thinking about like collage and these kind of multi elements, whether it be like the materials themselves or the emotional context is that the work um, I'm making is trying to evoke or even um, the inspiration and the references itself. I think that this play of like refuge and disruption is a language of juxtaposition for me and the feelings in the work. Um, But the disruption is within reevaluating these spaces that I grew up in and had these experiences. I mean, for all folks, I think that a lot of our trauma comes from like our childhood experiences, which are related to spaces that we called home, family, etc. It's a disruption of reframing that nostalgia in a sense. Um, considering elements of really just breaking down my experiences with the people that I grew up around, didn't grow up around. But but I think also my work is really influenced, especially with the installation work, about disrupting the site specificity of wherever the work is. So you know, if I'm exhibiting in a museum space, in a space that has historically not been inclusive for people of the global majority, it's also a disruption of that, like literally of the white wall gallery with putting up these hand-painted gestures or collage papers and wallpapers that physically feel like this space is uh, not a part of the setting, but it's physically, emotionally, like who feels comfortable and what's usually in the space. I know you were involved with a project, I think maybe in 2019, at the Nelson Atkins called, called 30 Americans. Yes. When you collected 90 works done by black, brown, people of color, and exhibited them in this space that is historically a very white space. How did it feel to be part of that and then step back and look at this fabulous collection that better represented, as you say, the global majority? That project was super fun. And I think mostly from the sense of community, With that project, I was involved in this aspect that was really unique to that show that I don't think the Nelson had done before, which was developing this community advisory group in which we met basically for two years before the exhibition opened, while it was going on and afterwards to kind of lead the museum with a specific perspective from Black, Brown, and Indigenous folk. And so it was artists in the room. It was pastors, educators, organizers, librarians, all of these different folks that were local to Kansas City. And so I think that they really trusted us through the process of promoting the exhibition, figuring out public programs that really spoke to the community, which was like our community and our people. And that was my favorite aspect about that show. 
the work was lovely itself, but in thinking about community, just the public programs that were put together and felt so specific to our local setting in Kansas City were really lovely. Well, you are also the co-founder, as I said in my intro, of Strange Fruit Femmes, which is a community partner of the Charlotte Street Foundation in Kansas City. Tell us about Strange Fruit Femmes and the programs you're working on in Kansas City and the Midwest. Strange Fruit Films was established in early 2019 with a friend of mine named Mary Lawson. And this was started uh, while I was in residency at Beeman Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha. And like I'm always doing, kind of like looking around my settings and really thinking about what what is the work that I need to make that really speaks to that community that really feels honest and intentional? And so in Omaha, I felt like there were a lack of artists of color spaces, period. And so I ended up teaming up with Mary and our first program that we put together was a seat at the table book club which was a cultural theory book club that was really focused around thinking about works by Black authors and theorists and talking about these collective spaces with Black folk, white folks, but really centering Black creative perspectives and And we just expanded. And so we decided to make an organization which we titled Strange Fruit Films, which was really about centering and uplifting and celebrating the work of Black, Brown and Indigenous films in the Midwest specifically. And so we've been doing free and accessible programming since the start of 2019, early 2019, that is virtual, in person. Um, And it's really focused around transformative healing through the arts. And we are currently in program partnership with Charlotte Street Organization. And we're going to be pushing out some programs for this coming fall. We're also going to be working with Interurban Art House in Overland Park, Kansas, And also going to be doing some work here at home with the South Dallas Cultural Center in South Dallas. And so, you know, a part of our work is really dedicated to making these spaces that are centering Black feminist theory and practice and traditions of like healing for our community centered around resistance So before we close, Glenisha, are there any exhibits coming up in the Missouri, Kansas City area where people can see your collage or your drawing or your installation work in person? I will have an exhibition opening at the Nerman Museum for Contemporary Art. And that is going to be opening in early November. That's going to be the Charlotte Street Foundation Visual Artist Award Show. It's also going to be Corey Igmick and Kathy Liao, who's also the two other fellows with my cohort. So I'm excited for that. Please look out and support us. I'm going to be having mostly new work for that show. 
Is it collage or graphite or something completely different? It'll be mostly collage, super colorful collage pieces that'll be a little bit larger than what I am usually working with and some graphite drawings as well. Perfect. Well, you can see Glenisha's drawing, collage and installation works on her website at glenishajohnson.com and that's spelled G-L-Y-N-E-I-S-H-A johnson with an h dot com and you can also see what community programming strange fruit femmes are creating you can go straight to their website strangefruitfems.com glenisha thank you so much for all the caretaking you are putting out into the community and for chatting with me this morning thank you so much my next guest this morning, Eric Ordway, also teaches at Truman State in Kirksville, where he is a lecturer in ceramics. But he also has a link much closer to home as he combines his Kirksville teaching with being a studio manager at Access Arts here in Columbia. He describes working with his hands as a sacred experience and an outward expression of his soul's inner reflection. And that his functional ceramic forms, his cups, bowls, teapots and platters, exhibit an unstable need in his heart that the glorious can be found in the mundane and the divine in the common welcome to the show eric well thank you diana it's very nice to be here do you think of yourself as a ceramic artist or a potter that's a really great question diana i was classically trained to be as a potter but as my work has grown and as my career has come in a ceramic artist i consider myself more of a ceramic artist now what do you think is the difference I think a potter, uh, you can spend a lifetime trying to make good pots. Um, an old rule of thumb that I was taught was that it takes 10 years to learn how to make good pots. It takes 10 years to unlearn how to make good pots. It takes 10 <laughs> years for your pots to be sweet. So pottery, as my old professor B. Clark used to say, it takes about an eighth of an inch to really understand what makes a functional pot sing. And so it's a really great foundation to build uh, making functional pots and like developing that eye and that hand. But at the same time, I'm also interested in making more sculptural forms and forms with a presence uh, inside of the gallery and inside a person's life. Explain to me what you mean by it takes another 10 years to make them sweet. Is it almost like the varnish that you put on a violin that it takes time to age? Uh, oh, well, I'm not, uh, a, I, I never had musical training, so I'm not quite sure I get that metaphor. But I think it takes a while to learn a sound technique and a sound tradition when making pots. And then it takes a while to unlearn those rules and learn how you can break them and kind of make them your own. And so there's like this melting point between the learning the rules and then unlearning the rules and really kind of finding like what helps you tell your story or help you show your aesthetic in the making of the work. So at this point in your career, in that mythical 30-year stage, you know, where, where are you? Have you? Are you in your second 10 years? <laughs> yeah, I, I've officially finished my first 10 years next year. And so I'll be entering into my second 10 years of making work here pretty shortly. So you'll be unlearning everything you've learned for the last 10 years. So, pretty much. <laughs> so what is it about working with clay that makes you feel a connection with the divine? I kind of go back to the creation stories that I learned as a child. And so in the book of Genesis, it talks about how God created the world in seven days. And one of those things is like how he created man out of the earth itself. And when I was doing my thesis study, I researched like, what does that, taking those words apart and kind of like, what do they mean? And the context I got out of that was, you know, God formed man out of clay. And so 
a lot of times when I was looking to find references to the sacred or references to the divine and working with the material, I often went back to these first stories I learned as a child. And so for me, like working with the material kind of like has a direct link to not only the oldest art medium that we have in our history, clay goes back 20,000 years in human making, but also relates to the mythical origins of a lot of our stories, not just in Christianity, but in Greek tradition and a lot of other traditions around the world. So I talked in my intro about how your vessels and platters meet an unstated need in your heart. Can you talk a little bit more about what that means to you, that kind of the functionality of your work? Yeah. So when I say that to me that making is a sacred experience, I what I kind of refer to it as is making is a form of prayer. And so when I was writing my thesis, I had to find a definition, a good working definition to like what prayer was for me. And a lot of times I came back to this idea that prayers is like this unsung or unsaid thing that we wrestle with like on the inside of our hearts. And so for me, like that's what making work with my hands references is like this outpouring of like this like inner dialogue or this inner working, uh, making itself known in the forms or hoping that I'm making itself known in the forms when everything goes well. Does does working with clay feel like wrestling? It yes. If you, <laughs> you talk to any beginning student, and it definitely feels like you're wrestling, especially on the potter's wheel. I teach both hand building and working on the potter's wheel, and so a lot of times when you are first learning how to center the clay, you are learning how to juggle not just this mass of material that has seems like it has a mind of its own, but also the forces at work in the wheel itself as it spins around and around at a very high speed sometimes. So it's part of the challenge of teaching to help students to slow down, to develop their understanding of how their body works and how their body moves and how that impacts what's happening on the potter's wheel with the clay in their hands. I think I have only sat at a potter's wheel once, possibly twice in my life, and it was just so incredibly impossible and frustrating. (laughs) How do you get, as a teacher, how do you get students past that feeling of like, this is just not going to work? I can't do it. Yeah, I I tell them, you know, this is a six-week journey you've just entered into. When I teach at Truman, usually I have students for about 15 weeks for about nine contact hours throughout the week. And I tell those students, it will take you six weeks to get comfortable with moving the material. When I teach at Access Arts, we have a much shorter time frame. And so I try to help set everyone's expectations very clearly. It's like, you will not master this technique unless you're a savant somehow. And, <laughs> you know, everything works for you. Uh, but I tell them, like, the expectation is small steps. We're going to learn to have how to have good body position to make sure that we're making the clay do what it wants. We're going to make sure that we're going to focus on getting it really well centered. So that way, when you do practice setting your bottom or pulling up your walls, you're in a good place where the clay will do what you want. And so I think it's all about setting expectations and like kind of going back to the basics of making sure everything is connected and that you're really not trying to use the force of your arms, but more of like you're trying to engage your entire being when you're working with this material. Do you prefer working on a wheel to hand building or vice versa? For many years, I was very biased against hand builders. Um, I was taught on the wheel. I worked on the wheel. But then as I have grown in this, and in my understanding of material, I found a, quite a freedom that you get with hand building. So even though my work primarily is wheel thrown and altered, still to this day, I still, I really do enjoy the breaks I get when I can do some hand building and really get very creative with the work that I make. 
So talk to me about that act of creating. When you sit down at the wheel or you pick up a hunk of clay, how much do you know where you're going with that hunk of clay? I usually have an idea of what form I want to make. And so the way I kind of describe my work is that they're all cousins. So they're all related to each other, but not exactly identical twins. And the reason why I do that is because I don't want my pieces to be pure production, like just like things that I've turned my body into machine to produce mugs, bowls, teapots, pitchers. But they all have this like element of the slow, the contemplative to them. And so they all have a similar aesthetic, but they're all just a little different. And so when I'm sitting down to the wheel with a ball of clay, I'm trying to think about, is this going to be a cup? Is this going to be a bowl? Will this be a pitcher? And sometimes I have a pretty good idea of what I'm going to make. And then sometimes the forms decide it's going to be a little bit different. And then from there, that's where the fun begins. And we get this like little creative challenge of, well, what can I make this into and what will it look like? Do you ever change course halfway through because the cup just doesn't want to be a cup that day? (laughs) (laughs) No. Unfortunately, like if a cup decides it doesn't want to be a cup, it it probably means like I need to start over that day. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, your your work is at what I call the sturdy end of ceramics. It's very far from the super refined Japanese porcelain school of exquisite detail and silky textures. It's it's much more earthy, your work. Mm. How do you feel when you hold or behold works in clay that are so far from your own creation philosophy? I think it's fantastic, honestly. Um, I love that that with this material, there's such a variety of different forms and different ways that we can take our aesthetic and meld them into this piece of material. The ancient Chinese porcelains that you mentioned, you know, those were crafted out of years and almost millennia of just crafts and doing routine one after the other to make a very ideal set of perfection for a Chinese emperor. Um, but in America, we don't really have that tradition to fall upon, you know, like in Japan, I think it's still alive in England. I think they still have some elements of it as well as other parts of the world. But in America, we really have this kind of sense of there is no set tradition that potters learn to follow. If anything, we kind of like are given these basic principles and philosophies and then we're told to make our own way and make our own voice. And so in that way, I think it's very unique that you can look at any American potter and you can ask any of them to make a cup. And every single cup will be different, Mm. expressing that individual's aesthetics. How do you describe your works if you meet someone in an elevator? Like, what is your description of your works? Usually, I give them a three-second elevator pitch of, like, I make functional pottery that's thrown on the potter's wheel. I make cups, bowls, platters, jars, pitchers, teapots. And they're like, oh, and usually people can relate to the functionality of pots, which for me was the thing that engaged me in making them first, other than painting or drawing or what have you. And so I find that individuals can relate to functionality, like how I can take a coffee mug and bring it up to my lips and drink my morning coffee. Like that's all familiar to us. What's unfamiliar is like when someone holds my piece in their hand and you know, they're confronted with a rough texture or a groove or like some like shift that causes them to be more aware of the vessel that they're drinking out of. Talk a little bit about the grooves and the marks you make. You use objects that are from your past or inspired by growing up on a family farm or your time working in construction. Talk about the mark making and and what that means to you. Yeah. So for me, when I was in graduate school, my professors really encouraged me to find a way to create tension in the forms themselves. And so I use a very slow potter's wheel that creates these very slow horizontal grooves around the entire vessel. 
And then to help bring in that tension, I wanted to have something that would give it some pop or some verticality between that horizontal and that vertical. And so that's when I started looking at old tools that I used to use in the construction trades or like thinking about how my grandfather toils in the fields, like plowing them, getting ready from corn or soybeans. And really this ability to like take an old tool and to use it in a new way really made me very interested in the physicality of these mark makings. And so there are, for me, relations to both the spiritual aspects of our lives, but then also like the very direct, like rooted, grounded aspects of being growing up in Missouri, growing up around Northern Iowa, seeing people work with their hands all my entire life and like bringing that history into the work that I make. Where do you sell your work? Do you go to art festivals? Is it in galleries? How do people find it? Yeah, I primarily have been working through galleries. So Sega Broadest Gallery there in Columbia has some of my pieces that they sell, as well as like sometimes I will go to different art fairs as opportunities present. Currently, I'm in the process of setting up my own web shop. And so I'll begin selling pieces through my website. So there'll be a more direct way that people can buy pieces from me. But my hope is to have two or three galleries that I have a very personal relationship with that I can sell my work through and a way to help support them, but also to get a wider audience to them in the near future. So you mentioned Sega Brightest Gallery here in Columbia, and I know you had a show there a few years back, and then there was your thesis show at the Bingham Gallery back in 2019. Do you have shows coming up where people can see your work in person? Yeah, I actually have a solo show down at the Osage Artist Community in Bell, Missouri. They'll be setting up later this month, and so that'll be a solo show. I also exhibit nationally and internationally, and so usually once a month I'm sending off a piece to either say I think I have a show at Workhouse Clay International 2021 in Virginia, and then I also have another teapot that will be exhibited at the Functional Pottery Show that is a pretty big deal in the world of ceramics. Perfect. Well, you can see ceramic artist Eric Ordway's works and find out more about him on his website at ericordway.com. Eric, thank you so much for taking a little time out from your family vacation to be with us this morning. Thank you, Diana. It's been great fun. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, as well as on Spotify. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests today, artist and educator Rusty Nelson, painter Molly Chouinard, polydisciplinary artist Glenisha Johnson and ceramic artist Eric Ordway. Thanks as always to guitarist Yasmin Williams whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri. Missouri.